Good morning, everyone, and welcome today. Uh, my name is Randy. It's great to have you with us again. I want to welcome you. And uh, one thing I want to share, uh, Dan uh, Prout has uh, been on our staff uh, not quite a year, a little less, uh, but uh, next Sunday afternoon we're going to be doing something very special uh, for Dan. He's going to be ordained into ministry. Uh, he's been serving with us and uh, kind of going through the process of being set apart uh, into Christian ministry. So uh, that'll be about 2.30 to, uh, next Sunday afternoon if you'd like to come and share with us. Uh, we'd love to have you uh, share. It'll be kind of an informal service, but uh, very, very special to him and to us as well. So keep that in mind. Uh, you know, I woke up this morning at about a little after five, and I had the worst Charlie horse I ever had in my entire life. And you know, for a preacher on Sunday morning, that's bad news. You know, so I'm thinking, man, I don't know how I'm going to get to the stage. First of all, how am I going to get to church? And secondly, how am I going to get on the stage? And how am I going to stand there? And uh, so I put, um, I put ice on it. Uh, actually, I put a thing of frozen peas on it. You know, uh, you don't have ice that, that works. Uh, then I put heat on it. I'm like, this is crazy. And so, you know what I realized it was? I thought, you know, Satan does not want me to preach this message this morning. So I started praying instead. And I still got a twinge, but uh, a lot, lot better. So anyway, you can, if I start falling over on one leg, you'll know why this morning. Uh, we've been in a series for a few weeks now on the life of David. You know, David's one of the greatest characters in the Bible. We talked about the first week, how many times we read about him, how many times he's mentioned. Uh, 28 books of the Bible talk about David or mention him. Jesus talks about David, quotes David. Uh, all throughout the Bible, this incredible character uh, is mentioned a great deal. And we've been talking about his life when he was young, how he was called, some important events in his life. And one thing we've come back to several times is, is this weakness of David and this big fall in his life. And so today we're going to talk more about that and kind of flesh that out. And uh, because the reality is, is that uh, the issue that David had is one that many of us struggle with today as well. And it happened again earlier this year in, in my life or my friends, uh, a friend in ministry, one of God's leaders and servants fell to lust. He'd been at the church for 30 years. And a little bit unusual, this was also his home church. And uh, he had gone away to college, gone into ministry, been away a few years, come back, served for 30-some years in his own church, his own home church, uh, in his early 60s, a pillar of the community, a husband, a father, a grandfather, a mentor, well-respected. But then suddenly, someone realizes something was wrong, and it had been discovered that he had been visiting strip clubs, then discovered that he had a girlfriend, at least one, maybe more, and then money was missing from the church. And he was fired immediately, and now the church is trying to pick up the pieces. And I want to tell you, I can't tell you how many times I have heard a similar story of a minister, a parachurch leader, a, um, a deacon, an elder, a Sunday school teacher, and it's always devastating. And what I've discovered in most of those cases, it's almost always the last person that you would suspect. Because on the outside, we can look like, hey, things are great. I'm this really faithful guy, but on the inside, our hearts can turn against God. And that's our story today. That's our story. Unfortunately, we're going to have to talk about this glaring mistake in David's life. Because while we said that David was a man after God's own heart, there was also a weakness inside of him. The man that seemed like the godliest man in all of Israel, called by God, chosen to be his leader, the shepherd of the people of Israel, falls to lust and then multiple other sins that are going to stun you if you haven't heard this story. And after this, we're all kind of left in the fallout thinking, how could this have possibly happened? 
How could this have happened? We're all shocked because it seems so out of character for David, like it always does the people who fall today. We're going to take some time today to see how all this unfolds and how it can and, and does happen today as well. Now, maybe you're just joining us, and this is a heavy subject, but, uh, but let me, there, it's got a great ending, okay? I'll, I'll fast forward to that. But it's a very serious topic, and so we're going to talk about it. Our story today, let's review what we know about David. At the age of 15, David was privately and secretly anointed by Samuel to be the next king of Israel. The current king was a guy named Saul, and the people thought he was great, but in God's eyes, he was a dud. And God withdrew his blessing, and God chose this young boy, a shepherd boy, to be the next king. And so he was anointed, oil was poured over his head, that's how they did it in that day. But privately, he had to go back to the sheep once more. And so for a time, it seemed like, what did this really mean? He went back into the field with the sheep again. And then one day, he took food to his brothers. We know the story, if you've read it, who were on the front lines of battle with the Philistines, their arch enemies. And he took food to his brothers, even as a young man. But there he heard the taunts of a giant of a man. His name was Goliath. And his challenge was anyone who would be willing to come and challenge him, he would kill him. It was a kind of a taunt and a challenge thrown out to the soldiers of Israel. He did it every day. And David was stunned that no one would take up the battle. And he, he kind of shamed all the grown men around him. And finally, he went to fight the giant armed with only a sling and a stone. You know, somebody asked me, why did David pick up five stones? If you look at the scripture, David went down to the brook, picked up five little stones, put four in his pouch, put one in his sling, and killed Goliath. I didn't know this. I didn't know how to answer, but they said it was because Goliath had four brothers. That, you know what, David thought, I'm going to have to take all five of them all by myself. Maybe, maybe the Israelites stepped in and helped him with the other four. All we know is that he killed the one. That was a big deal. He killed him with one stone slung to his head right between the, 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 uh, the eyes and killed him. And so now David is, uh, is well known. He's suddenly thrust into a place of, of, of popularity and, uh, and, and people know who he is, but he still goes back to the sheep. But then one day Saul remembers this young guy and he heard he was a musician, so he invites him to come back to the palace and become a servant and musician. You see, Saul, uh, when God withdrew from him, he had a horrible temper, and some say even a, like a demon inside of him. And so he was hard to be around. And David, when he played the harp, it soothed his anger, except a time or two when Saul got mad at him and tried to kill him with a javelin, you know. But, but David still kept coming back. And then when David gets a little older, he decides to go to battle for real. And so he becomes a great military leader under the king Saul, the guy he was going to replace at some point. And that infuriates Saul because when they came back from battle, they would sing, the women would sing, you know, Saul's killed a thousand, David's killed 10,000. You can imagine how that made Saul feel. It was, it was true, but still it was hard to take. And that made him really want to kill Saul. And so he put out a bounty on his head. And for many years, David lives on the run, on the edge in a lot of cases. You can read about it. It takes 66 chapters to tell his story. And a lot of them tell about this meantime when he is anointed king, but still under um, a threat of death by Saul. Until finally, God allows Saul to be defeated in battle, and, and the, long, the short story is that Saul ends up killing himself because he's about to be killed by somebody else. And whenever that happens, suddenly Saul is gone, and David, suddenly, 23 years after he is anointed king, David finally become king. Can you imagine that? 
For 23 years, that's, I mean, that is a long time to be king anointed and a king elect and never to take the throne. But when he finally gets there, things happen very quickly. David quickly unites the, the country. Everybody, you know, uh, kind of comes together under his leadership. He defeats all of their enemies. You never hear about the Philistines after this point. You never hear about them because they're gone. They're defeated. He, he, he builds a beautiful palace. He has multiple wives, which is going to be a problem. He has a whole bunch of kids. He has a prosperous economy. And a great nation is flourishing under David's leadership. And so here he does all of this by midlife. So things happen quickly for him, probably in his 40s when it all starts to fall apart. Now, isn't that a story that we've heard before, right? Successful, golden boy, he hits the 40s. What do we call that? The midlife crisis, right? Midlife crisis. You know, um, when I was in my 40s, I had a, a minor midlife crisis, I think. I bought a Jeep Wrangler, which I always wanted, and I started taking banjo lessons. I know, most some of you know that. Um, the Jeep lasted longer than the banjo, but they're both gone. So I think I'm safely past that crisis in my life. I hope to not have anything more severe. But at any rate, David's was pretty serious, all right? 2 Samuel chapter 11, let's pick up the story. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Ramah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. So here is David, the most powerful man in the world, literally. But he falls to the powerful temptation of lust and then adultery. Now, I mean, let's be honest, it wasn't like David didn't have a woman in his life, all right? The Bible tells us that he had, he had uh, eight wives and ten concubines. Now, a concubine is all the benefits without any of the commitment, basically, what that is. So he's got 18 women in his life. 18 women there for his beck and call. But here's the amazing thing, and I never really connected this a lot. The sad thing is that David never had a one-flesh, covenant-type relationship with any of them. Have you ever thought about that? If you've ever studied that, he never had a committed relationship with any single woman. And that really is the secret to overcoming sexual sin. The Bible says that we are to be the husband of one wife, the wife of one husband. It talks about oneness, and that is really what protects us from lust and adultery and, and the fall of sexual sin. But David had a large sexual appetite, and his, his status as king allowed him to feed that, indulge as much as he wanted. And he did, with at least 18 women in his life. But here's the story. David it is restless. A long winter is over. You know, they had winters like we do, and nobody fought in the winter because they didn't have good accommodations. They waited until spring when it was comfortable, and, and spring had come in this place, and David was restless. It was the first time he had ever not gone to war. I mean, for probably 25 years or more, he had always gone in the spring into battle, and, you know, it was, there was a lot of camaraderie, and a lot was going on there, and all the, uh, everybody else had gone. David had sent Joab and his men out to clear up a minor problem. And the reason, one reason David didn't go was because there was no reason to. Everybody had been defeated. When, when you reach success at some point, that's when you're very vulnerable. 
And David decided, you know what, I'm going to stay home in the palace and take it easy. I'm going to rest this year. And if you read a story about David's palace, it was beautiful. It was probably the tallest building in the whole city of Jerusalem and overlooked every, everything else. And, and David had an element of pride. He goes outside and kind of walks around in the spring air, you know, and kind of looking at his city, his town, and looking around him. And he gazes until his eyes caught an interesting sight. There on a nearby roof was a woman who was bathing. And that wasn't all that uncommon. I mean, today, if somebody was on their roof bathing, we'd go, call the crazy people because, you know, this, this is not normal. In those days, they didn't have peaked roofs. They had flat roofs, and they used a roof for a lot of things. They would cook up there and dry food, and, you know, they would bathe, obviously, in some cases up there. And so it probably wasn't all that unusual. And a decent man would probably have averted his eyes and gone inside. That would have been decent, right? I mean, after all, temptation is all around us. We live in a world full of temptation, right? And if we're decent, we learn how to avoid that. But David wasn't decent at the time. David didn't look away. He looked longer. He looked harder. He looked, he looked with probably binoculars, if they had such a thing in that day. Bring me the binoculars, you know. He really wanted to look, and he began to lust in his heart. And what the king wanted, the king always got. He was king, after all. And so he sent someone to inquire who she was and discovered that she was Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah Hittite. Now, that may not mean anything. Her dad was a prominent man, but the important fact was that, number one, she was married. Number two, who she was married to. Who in the world was Uriah? We don't know him very well, but he was one of the notorious soldiers of David. They called him the 30. We might call them SEAL Team 6. These were the kind of guys that they were. Uriah was not really Jewish. But Uriah was very loyal to David and had been with him for many, many years while he was being hunted by Saul. He was a very loyal and trusted friend. He had done so many valiant and brave things, and he would literally die for David. Let me tell you what it was like to be one of the 30. They waited on David even before he was king in his beck and call. One time David said, man, I am so hot, I wish I had a drink of water from this spring. And this spring happened to be behind enemy lines. Somebody overheard him, one of his valiant men, and they said, let's go get it. And they crossed enemy lines, sneaked in there, got him a drink of water, and brought it back and gave it to him. He said, you wanted some water, David. Here it is from the spring you wanted. I mean, they would do those kind of brave things for him, and they would do anything for David. That was Uriah. But you know what? When David heard that, all of this loyalty was forgotten, and he sent for Bathsheba, and he slept with her. You know, for David, it was probably a one-night stand, and probably not the first, really. Probably not the first in his life. The Bible is very honest about the weaknesses of its heroes. It talks about anger and jealousy and greed and all other sins that people have, uh, even though God used them in great ways. So there's some hope for us in that. There's some hope that even when we struggle, that God can help us overcome that and we can be used. And David was a weak guy in this area. He had strength, but he had a great weakness as well. Now, the incident may have been forgotten by David, but a month later, Bathsheba comes back to the palace a second time to tell him that she was pregnant with his child. That had to have been a blow to David. Now, he had a lot of other kids, but obviously not in this type of scenario, and, and it was a problem. Why? Because Uriah had been in battle for some time where David probably should have been. Uriah was gone. It could not be his child. So David quickly goes into damage control mode. 
And that's what we do when we sin, right? When we get caught, we're like, okay, we've got to fix this really, really quick. You, you think about how many more mistakes have been made when we try to fix our problems and not deal with them directly, all right? Here's what happens. 2 Samuel chapter 11. So David sent this word to Joab, his commander. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, how the war was going, all the mundane questions about battle. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Now, he's saying a lot more than what it sounds like here. He's not saying, man, you got stinky feet on your, you know, you need to go home and take a bath. He's not saying that. He's saying, Uriah, you, you are so faithful, buddy. I am so, I want to honor you. Go down to your house, kick off your shoes, get yourself a shower, spend some time with your wife. See, David's trying to fix his problem by getting Uriah home as quickly as possible to his wife. Then David, he's being a romantic himself, he sent him a romantic dinner to them, sent him a bottle of wine, hoping that Uriah would sleep with his wife and think this child she would soon reveal that she was carrying was his own. But you know what? Uriah did not go home. The plan didn't work. That night, instead of going home, he slept at the door of the palace with the servants. The next day, when David finds this out, he, he asked him why, and Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped out in the open country. How can I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? See, it wasn't any question about what David wanted him to do or suggested. As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. And then David said to him, stay here with me one more day, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among the master's servants. He did not go home. Man, couldn't figure it out, could he? But you know what? Uriah had what David did not have. He had integrity. Uriah had more integrity when he was drunk than David had when he was sober. Isn't that amazing? He was a man of integrity. But do you see how all this unfolds? Do you see how one sin leads to another? Where the sin of lust, which is a sin, you know the Bible says if a man lusts in his heart, he's already committed adultery with that person. But how lust can lead to full-blown adultery, and how then adultery can lead to deceit and lies. And David's pulled about all of the strings he can do to try to make this work and control this problem, but he has one more plan. One more plan. And if you haven't heard this before, you're not going to believe what happens. He sends Uriah back to the battle with a sealed letter to Joab, his commander. And here's what the letter said. Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fierce and then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. Man. The guy has to carry his own death sentence. He has to take it back and say, basically, get me killed. That doesn't sound like a guy with God's own heart, does it? That doesn't sound like something that you or I would ever think we could do. Now, Joab, you got to know about him, he was heartless. I mean, he was a hard egg. He would do anything. He didn't care. He didn't care about life. He was loyal to David. He would did it. He looked at it, read it, said, Done. He put Uriah on the front line, and then he ordered everybody else to move back, and Uriah was killed. And when, when David heard about it, his heart skipped a beat. The problem in his mind was fixed. Yeah, it was sad, you know, but he was a soldier. He should have expected that would happen. 
Bathsheba mourned, but then David quickly marries her, and soon their son was born. You know, I can imagine that David felt a little bit bad, a little guilty, a little bit uncomfortable about it, but that soon passed, and he actually looked like the hero for taking care of his loyal friend's widow and his baby. Didn't it look great? I mean, David, did he pull this off or what? I mean, everybody, nobody knew. Nobody knew whose child it was. Everybody assumed when Uriah came home and he was with his wife and she got pregnant and he got killed and David married and took care of the child. What a great guy. But it wasn't over. Because the next statement in the Bible says this, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Oh yeah, there, there was that minor detail, wasn't it? Just a minor small thing uh, that was a huge thing. And David was not going to get away with that. You know what, this story has been repeated over and over and over down through time. Maybe it doesn't end with a king and somebody dying, you know, and all that happening, but it ends with the destruction of lust. And maybe you've been a victim in this. If you have, you kind of know what it feels like, don't you? Uriah on this earth never knew what was going on more than likely, but imagine the betrayal that he would have felt if he had known, if he had known. Maybe you do know that because you've been there, you've been hurt. Or maybe you've been a willing participant. Maybe you just, maybe you fell to it and you didn't get anybody killed, but there was a lot of damage done and you know in your heart today, you know. And guys, if a guy like David could fall, anyone can. Anyone can. You know, I learned this early in ministry. Early in ministry, my first ministry Within a year or two of me going into ministry, young, didn't know what to do or anything, uh, one of our deacons, a guy that I loved like a brother, a guy I saw literally every day, a guy I have no idea how he pulled this off and how he, how he cheated on his wife in a little bitty town of 300 people. I don't know how he did it, but for some time he did. It was a stupid thing to do. Deceit, lust, adultery is always stupid, and we do deceitful, dumb, obvious things. And, but it came out. And I was stunned, I was shocked, and it, it reminded me, you know what, I could do that, it could happen to me. No one is invincible, no, no one, not, not, not even you. You know, Lori and I were talking about this, I said, I've got to preach on lust. She goes, what are you going to say? I'm going to say, it's wrong, you know, it's the wrong thing to do. And uh, <laughs> you caught that, good. Um, you know, it's an awkward thing. And, and she said, well, you know, what are you going to say? I'm like, well, we all struggle with it. She said, do you struggle with it? I'm like, oh, my God, of course I struggle with it, you know. And she, and she goes, well, I didn't know that. I'm like, surely you knew that. We all struggle with that, right? Whatever area you are in your life, you're going to struggle with it. You know, if it's boredom, it's success like David, neglect, failure, carelessness, laziness, Uncontrolled thoughts, all of those things can lead to a fall much like David's. But let me tell you something. It did not start that day on the roof. It did not start. It started in his heart long before that. It started inside of him. And you know what? Not only does it start small and grow, sin can take you farther than you ever think you could go. You cannot imagine how far you can go and what a tangle of webs we have, uh, the web that we have to leave when we lie and we start sinning, it's just hard to stop, isn't it? 
Now, guys, here's the thing that I, I believe about this is that we're never going to be able to avoid all the temptation in the world. We're not going to do it. I mean, I don't think David probably did not go on the roof looking for people bathing on top of their roofs. Probably didn't. I don't know that. More than likely not. It happens. Temptation is there. Sexuality is around us in every segment of our society. Now, we can limit our exposure to it, though, can't we? We can be wise. We can minimize the temptation. We can control what we view, what we read, what we see online, where we go, what we do. But unfortunately, for many of us, while we should be starving this monster, unfortunately, we began to feed the monster a little bit at first. But instead of satisfying the monster, it just gets stronger. Because with this sin, as with many, there's a diminishing satisfaction and an increased desire. You know, many of the, the horrible serial killers that involve sexuality in that, and I know none of you all are like that, but I mean, a lot of these guys like Ted Bundy, the, the guys that you read about, they began by looking at the underwear, the lingerie section of the Sears Roebuck, Roebuck catalog. They will tell you that. That's where it started because they fit it a little bit and it increased, diminished satisfaction, increased desire. David fed his lust with at least 18 women, but he wanted more. He always wanted more. He always wanted more. It, it just didn't work. Now, his son Solomon took it to a whole other level. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Can't even imagine that, right? And he fell in a similar way. And near the end of his life, he wrote this, Please rejoice in the wife of your youth. The wife of your youth. Guys, I will tell you, as I said a few moments ago, lust is every man's struggle. Every man's struggle. If you argue, you also got a problem with lying. Add that to your struggle, lying and lust. But it's not just men who struggle, it's women too, right? It's not just men, especially in our world. With men, it's visual. It's David, visual. He sees this woman, and he wants that. It's what he sees. With women, they tell me that it's more emotional for them. That women want to be seen more attractive and desirable. Because, guys, sometimes we do a poor job of letting them know that they are attractive. We fail, and we open up the failure to our spouses. That's a huge thing. You know, I think it's really interesting. I've seen some things change in the past. Years ago, it was always the man who lusted and committed adultery and left his wife. It was almost always in my, my experience. But today, I'm not really sure why more and more women are falling prey to lust and adultery. In fact, in our world today, in our, our experience, in our church family, which we've had a lot of families that follow this through the years, in many, many cases, the majority of cases, it's the women. Now, I don't know what that is. I'm not sure, you know, if it's a different world today. I know it is. But, but my plea would please guard against in your marriage. Guard against this in your life because it will be devastating. It will be devastating. There are things to do. There are conversations that you can have. There's counseling. If your needs are not being met in your marriage that you need to address before you go off the rails, and before you get careless. You know, David was careless. He really was. When, when you're doing what you are supposed to be doing, temptation is a lot easier to deal with. He should have been out fighting somebody, 
pick on somebody if you had to. When you're behaving, when you are where you're supposed to be and you're not where you're not supposed to be, you won't be tempted as much. Because the real reality is that we're often tempted when we have a lot of free time and no focus in our lives. I mean, when you're sitting around on your computer and you're just surfing the web, just watching videos, looking at stuff, whatever pops up, you know, it's going to happen, isn't it? You don't have any focus when you don't have a plan, when you don't have any purpose for your time. God has a plan for your lives. And if you're living his plan out, you've got less time to be tempted. You're going to be tempted, though, about something. Because all around us, you know, it's, there are temptations. And there's nothing wrong with seeing something or someone beautiful or attractive. Nothing wrong with being tempted. We, you will be tempted. Jesus was tempted, right? not a sin to be tempted. What is wrong is what we do next. If we decide to act against the boundaries that God has established, that's when we go off the rails. And let me tell you this, sex is not wrong. You might read this, you go, oh, that is wrong, wrong. In fact, our culture, a segment of our culture is distorted because they think sex is wrong. It's not. Sex is beautiful. It's God's gift to a married man and woman. Can I repeat that? A married man and woman any sex outside of that is sin. You might say, well, why, why is that so? Well, we could talk about that a long time, but let me just briefly tell you why. Sex is designed to connect us to our spouse. It's like emotional glue. It's not just physical. It is emotional as well. And if you engage in, with, in sex with multiple partners, then the emotional glue loses its strength like David did. He had so many women in his life connected, had sex, connected emotionally, and soon there wasn't any connection there. He had no loyalty, no connection to any single woman. By the way, this is also important. It's important that we have a healthy physical relationship in our marriage. So if that isn't there, you need to be working on that. The Bible even says that that's a part of our responsibility as spouses so that we protect our mate. That's important, all right? Talk about that, but we're not going to go any further there, all right? But the world has said, you know what? It doesn't matter. All that doesn't matter. It's just an act, you know, and have fun and enjoy it. But there's so many reasons that we have to resist. Number one, the Bible says so. God says so multiple times, not just once, multiple times, and that should settle it. But then we see what happens as a result of our disobedience to the possibility of pregnancy and sexually transmitted diseases and so on and so forth. Premarital and extramarital sex is a violation of God's three purposes for marriage. You know what? You know what God's purpose for marriage is? Let me, let me give you three things. Number one, maybe not in this order, but number one is procreation. God said go and, and procreate, multiply, have children. Secondly, pleasure and intimacy. It's not just for procreation. It's also for pleasure, enjoyable. But it's also a picture of our relationship with Christ. In Ephesians chapter 5, it talks about that connection, husband and wife connecting that and how we relate to God through submission and faithfulness. The whole concept of covenant is found only in marriage. And anywhere else, it just perverts that whole idea. And that's why we have to protect marriage as God designed it and not make it whatever the world wants it to be. Now, strangely enough, we learn more about how to deal with lust and deal with this temptation, we learn more from Uriah than we do from David. Isn't that odd? I mean, look at this quickly. I'm not sure I ever thought much about this. But what did Uriah do? 
was Uriah tempted? Yes. Was it wrong with his temptation? No. But in his heart, it was wrong to go home to his wife. So what did Uriah do? He set boundaries, first of all. So if you want to help protect yourself, set boundaries. Here's what Uriah felt, his heart, his conviction. It would be wrong for him to go into his wife while his peers, his fellow soldiers, were at battle. And so he said, I'm not even going to go home. I'm not going home. I can't deal with that temptation at home, so I'm not even going to go there. We think he's crazy, maybe he was, but that's what his conviction, all right? Guys, we need to set boundaries that we will not cross under any circumstances. Our problem today is we don't, know how to, we don't know how to set boundaries on any type of sin. That's why we fall so often. Set boundaries we will not cross. Avoid being alone with those of opposite sex that we might be attracted to. Do not share or listen to their feelings or share our own because it's too easy to develop attraction. How many people have fallen into, a, into a, an adulterous affair by just talking with somebody to start with over time? And I include ministers in that as well, and counselors too, because we're sometimes called to do that, all right? Set boundaries in dating. Boundaries are dropped in most dating relationships today. today. Most couples are, are, premar- are sexually active before they're married. It's just it's still wrong. And we drop our guard and our boundaries and how far someone will go. Be selective in what you share with somebody. You know, it's so discouraging sometimes for me as marrying couples. I'll be honest. You know, I counsel and I ask them to, to separate, but so many couples are sexually active before they marry that, you know, I'm just thinking, man, what is, what is the joy? What's the, the newness of sleeping together forever and then getting married and going home and sleeping with each other? I mean, it's not what God intended, guys. There's something to be something special there. Save that specialness for the marriage bed, all right? Secondly, Uriah had accountability. He had boundaries and he had accountability. You know what, he, he could have gone out somewhere and slept by himself and not gone home, right? But he slept where the other servants slept. That's what it says. Did he want to go home? Sure he did. But he told them, don't let me go in there. Don't let me go home. I'm going to stay here with you so that you can keep me accountable because I really want to go home, but I'm not going to do it. He had a greater commitment than any personal desire, and his commitment was to be loyal to his king. And our commitment needs to be to be loyal and obedient to God and remain pure. Now, we got lots of rules. We know that. But we, know, we also know that our faith is a lot more than rules. The Christian life is not just rules, guys. We have plenty of rules. We know what's right. We need more than rules to keep us pure. We need a passion for God. A passion for God. We fight passion for lust with a passion for God. Passion for any other sin with a passion for God, because He is our King. He is our King. And I want to give you an acrostic to help. I'm not big on acrostics, but I ran across this one. I thought it would be helpful to you. Because He is our King, because we owe Him our loyalty, let's talk about the word anthem. And this is not original, by the way. But, but the word anthem talks about a loyalty, all right? So let's, talk, let's use the word anthem as an acronym to explain how do we resist this temptation. First of all, the A is avoid temptation. How many sins could we avoid if we simply avoided the temptation? If we set up boundaries and accountability in our life to say, I'm not even going to get close to that line. Avoid temptation. N is say no to sin immediately. The longer you linger, 
the longer you think about it, the more you justify it, the more you argue in your mind, the more likely you are to fall. So say no to sin immediately. The T is turn your mind to Christ. Turn your mind to Christ. He is bigger than everything else and greater than everything else. The, the H is hold the promise of Christ in your mind. When you need something to focus on, hold the promise of Christ in your mind. The E is enjoy a superior satisfaction in Christ, that He is more rewarding than anything or anybody could ever be. And the M is move into a positive activity. Move to a positive activity that takes your mind, your energy, your thoughts away from the temptation. David should have turned around, packed up his ditty bag, and gone to the, some, fight somebody, you know, and just left the city, right? A, a more positive activity. Now, what happened in David's life? I've got to wrap this up. Da- lust damaged David's relationship with Christ, with God, no doubt about it. There was a sin against Uriah. There was a sin against Bathsheba. There was a sin against himself. You know, the Bible says that the sexual sin is worse in some ways because we sinned against our own body. It's an interesting study right there. But you know what? All the people David sinned against, including his his kingdom, the people in his kingdom, he sinned primarily against God. That's where the sin really was. He really sinned against God. And it caused a huge scar on his entire life and history and legacy. And I wanted to just, just briefly tell you what happened. Sin always brings repercussions. And suddenly you got a king now who before long everybody knows what he has done. And so it, his whole nation suffers because of the fallen king. But he got worse than that. The child that was born to Bathsheba and David died as an infant. Later on, one of his sons raped his own sister. And then another of his sons, Absalom, killed that son in vengeance, in retaliation for raping his sister. And then that Absalom went on to sleep with David's concubines in broad daylight on a rooftop for everybody to see. I mean, you talk about the shame. What David did in private, his son Absalom, nobody's saying that's right, but he did it in public. And then he tried to take the kingship from his father. David's government began to fall apart, and David was chased from his own capital. He was chased out of town by his son. I mean, that's where things went. This golden boy who had done so many things right, when he sins, it all begins to fall apart. And that's kind of the history of our own sin, isn't it? And we're going to leave David there for a week and let you meditate on that. But, but fortunately, the good news is that David knew what to do to get right with God. He knew what to do when he sinned. And next week, we're going to wrap this series up by talking about how do we repent. And we all need that, no matter what our issue is. How do we repent? And I hope you'll come back to hear that. But let me just say, before we leave, I don't want to leave on a down note. And I will tell you that David did learn how to repent. And David came back to God, and he was called a man after God's own heart after all of this was over. And history records him as a godly man, even though he fell so deeply. Now, maybe you're here this morning, and you can't put yourself in David's shoes because you've not gone that far But the Bible says all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that we all need to acknowledge our sin. And we all need Jesus to bring us back to God because of our brokenness. And if you're here and you don't have that relationship with him, I'd love to have a conversation with you today, uh, this week, whenever it might be. And please come back next week because we're going to close out David's life in a great way, a positive way. 
Let's understand that we have a merciful God who loves us and restores us. Let's pray together. Father, we just come to you today. And Lord, uh, we've been uh, talking about a serious thing, an honest thing. It makes us vulnerable before you because we all have to acknowledge our weakness. And God, we want to we thank you for loving us in spite of all that brokenness that we have. God, your word says that even in our sin that you sent Jesus to come into our world to, to live a perfect life and then to die on a cross to compensate, to repair, to sacrifice, to, to pay for what we had broken, our relationship with you. And your word says that through Christ we can be restored and reconciled to you and be made perfect through Jesus. God, thank you for that. And Lord, as we take a few moments now, uh, what, what should be the climax of our service, God, just to worship you through communion and the Lord's Supper to acknowledge your incredible love of sending Jesus to our earth to, to, to live a perfect life and die a sacrificial life for us, God. We just pray that you'll guide our thoughts and our minds. Lord, help all of us to review our life, to give an account to you right now, to just come clean and say, God, these are the things I've done that have shamed you and broken your heart. God, restore me, forgive me, restore me to your, your relationship and your love. God, I pray that all of us who are believers would be invited to come around the table and share in this. And for all those who maybe are struggling, that God, you would give them a higher plane, a hope, a desire, a commitment to follow Christ. I pray these things in his name. Amen.